This is season two of Mobile Suit Breakdown, a podcast about Japanese sci-fi mega franchise Mobile Suit Gundam for new fans, old fans, and not yet fans, where we watch, analyze, and review all 40 years of the iconic anime in the order it was made. We research its influences, examine its themes, and discuss how each piece of the Gundam canon fits within the changing context in Japan and the world from 1979 to today. This is a very special Mobile Suit Breakdown Forum episode. Like the Forum of Ancient Rome or the Forum of the Internet, (laughs) this is our listeners' opportunity to talk to us and share their views. We asked and you delivered. We have takes, corrections, questions, and more. Even a couple mini research pieces. But first, I would like to address an unanswered question from two weeks ago, which was the phrase, the birds will laugh at me. If I'm hearing it correctly, what Camille is saying is tori ni warawareru, which is the birds will laugh at me. Specifically, it's the verb warau, which is to laugh. In the passive form, and when you use the passive in Japanese, it can have a note of something being done to you that is unpleasant or inconvenient. I had the opportunity to ask half a dozen Japanese people ranging in age from 93 to 36 whether or not this was a Japanese phrase. None of them had heard it before. Uh, Their assumption was it had something to do with being made a fool of or being made to look foolish. Which fits more or less with how we interpreted it, that, that it would be embarrassing to Camille for his room to be dirty, that he would look foolish if he died and his room was a mess. Uh, but it's not a common phrase or anything like that. If you poke around on fan blogs from the Japanese side of the Gundam fandom, you'll occasionally encounter the phrase, uh, I think you would translate it as Tomino grammar or Tomino language. <laughs> suggesting uh, that Tomino's writing, even in Japanese, feels kind of weird and unnatural. That something about his particular way of writing is unique. And so it doesn't surprise me that he's made up some things that sound like idioms, and maybe for Tomino personally they are, Mm. (laughs) but nobody else recognizes them. With that, we are ready to get to our listeners' takes and questions. First, we have Dan, who wanted to know, what is our opinion on why certain mobile suits are called Gundams and others are not? He gives the example of the Mark II, which is made of a titanium alloy, canonically, but is called a Gundam. The Hyakushiki and Rick Diaz are both made of Gundarium alloy, but are not classified as Gundams. Do you have an opinion? I mean, my very flippant, unfamiliar with the lore answer would be that Gundams are piloted by our heroes. (laughs) If a, if a protagonist is piloting it, it's a Gundam. So far, that's a pretty good answer. So far. <laughs> with, with some occasional exceptions in Extremis, <laughs> we've seen Camille pilot some things that were not Gundams. And we've seen people who are not Camille piloting the Mark II and the Zeta Gundam. But by and large. <laughs> yes. All that being said, both in the real world and in the world of Gundam, Gundam is a marketing tactic. 
Gundam connects you to the famous legacy of Amuro Ray and the hero of the One Year War. But if we actually want to talk about the characteristics of a mobile suit that make it a Gundam, or at least allow it to qualify as a Gundam, I would say, fundamentally, it's got to have a face. It's got to have a kind of human-like face with two eyes. And at least so far, so remember that I only have three Gundams to go off of at this juncture. I have the Granddaddy, the Mark II, and the uh, Zeta. And the Psycho Gundam. Oh, that's right. I was going to say color scheme, but the iconic color scheme only applies, again, when our protagonist is piloting it. Uh, the Mark II notably does not have the iconic white with primary colors scheme, and neither does the Psycho Gundam. But they also, in addition to having a face, all have the little V-fin detail. That is true. They all have pretty similar heads, and they are the only mobile suits that have that head. While the Jim, for instance, has a very similar body to the Gundam, it has a different head. Mm -hmm. The Gundams might be the only mobile suits that have chins. <laughs> I was also going to point out that while Tom may theoretically have a lot more to say about this question, he really can't speak to any Gundams that I haven't met yet. And so he is somewhat limited in his ability to <laughs> really dig into this topic. Ask us again next year. Every year. <laughs> And it seems to me, on the vein of Gundam being a marketing tactic, that Gundarium is named for the Gundam rather than the other way around. Yeah. It's a bit like now when we say Band-Aid to mean adhesive bandage and Kleenex to mean disposable tissue, like yeah. the Gundam name became so, so big and all-encompassing for mobile suits that it sort of infected everything related to mobile suits. And remember that the Gundam name was picked in the first place for exactly this reason. They needed a word that no one else was using for the name of their series. I think we've mentioned this before, but originally the show was going to be called Freedom Fighter Gunboy. Mm -hmm. When they decided to change that name, they took the Dom from the end of Freedom and they took the Gun from the beginning of Gunboy and smushed them together and got Gundam. And the reason they picked it is because it was available. For trademark and copyright reasons, they needed something unique. In the same vein, LC suggests that we should do more deep dives into the mobile suits themselves, that they're characters in the show, and that it would be beneficial for the podcast if we would occasionally have a conversation about their aesthetics or the in-universe story behind them. And I'm not opposed to this idea, although I think I'm more interested in the mobile suit aesthetics than Nina is. That's definitely true. There's also the fact that I don't feel particularly well equipped to comment on the aesthetics. It feels like the sort of thing that I would need to know more about automobile design or industrial design or things of that nature to speak to mobile suit design in an in-depth kind of way or to talk maybe about how they reflect other design trends that have to do with machinery, and that's not an area that I know much about. I'm very interested in talking about them as stand-ins for the human body or the ego. You know, what do they represent? What is their metaphorical purpose in the show? But beyond being able to say, I like this mobile suit, I don't like this one, these colors are great, these colors are terrible, <laughs> that's a cool curvy bit. Uh, yeah, I don't feel as well equipped to talk about the aesthetics, and I think that's why I don't gravitate in that direction. It's certainly worth talking about. 
it's just not going to come up naturally for me. Yeah, I have similar blind spots in terms of my background knowledge. I don't know a ton about car design or industrial design or things like that that would be useful in this context or that would give us the sort of hints that we would need to start a research project. But if one of you out there is an expert on this kind of thing and you feel like we're really missing out on on important mobile suit knowledge and that the podcast would benefit from it, feel free to drop us an email. Enlighten us. We'd be happy to share it. As for the in-universe story behind the mobile suits, that's kind of a tricky issue for us because most of it doesn't show up in the anime. And what information there is tends to come from beta canon materials, manga side stories, novelizations, descriptions in gunpla manuals that were created years after the show. And so it's hard to say how much of it is relevant or... Most of that would at the very least be outside the stated scope of our project. And so while interesting is not really part of what we committed to doing... <laughs> Mobile suits, yo. <laughs> Untapped depths. I guess the short answer is, it sounds really interesting. Neither one of us feels quite competent to take that on ourselves. Hey, as long as we're talking about mobile suit aesthetics. Sean asks, why is the Hyakushiki the best mobile suit ever? Which is really Sean's way of saying, the Hyakushiki is the best mobile suit ever. This is kind of an inside joke between Sean and I because we argue about whether or not the Hyakushiki is a good mobile suit pretty frequently. And I'm going to take the bait here and I'm going to say, OK, I will acknowledge that in at least one respect, the Hyakushiki is one of the best mobile suits ever. And that is while it is a gaudy, blinged out piece of I do really appreciate when a mobile suit serves the narrative and artistic function of revealing something about the character who pilots it. I was going to say, I don't know that there's any evidence of it being a good mobile suit, as in it being a superior piece of combat equipment. As a mobile suit that fulfills an important function in the story, absolutely, it's great. Of all the mobile suits out there, it is one of the most revealing about the person who pilots it. It's so interesting that this person who expends a lot of energy hiding who he is has the flashiest, gaudiest, least innocuous of mobile suits. <laughs> he doesn't really want to blend in. No. He doesn't really want to go unseen. Absolutely not. And when in the first few episodes we realized that there are in fact many red mobile suits now <laughs> and lots of pretenders to the throne of the red comet flying around such that seeing a red mobile suit is no longer indicative that you might be fighting the red comet. For some reason, Quattro has to go and get an even more audacious mobile suit. It's also the kind of mobile suit that makes it look like you're trying to start a fight. It's like driving around in a red sports car and begging for a ticket, right? Like. If you're if you're taking to the field in a golden mobile suit, it's like you want every single enemy to come for you, which is not really what happens to him in the story, which I always find odd that everybody doesn't just like beeline <laughs> and dogpile him. But, you know, whatever, because he likes to fight. He wants to fight. And the other thing that I pointed out when it first appeared is that it has the general form of a Gundam. It could be called a Gundam and we wouldn't bat an eye, but it's not a Gundam. In the same way that Quattro has much of the form of being a hero, the presentation of being a hero, but not actually a hero. There's also those eyes. The mm. Hyakushiki's eyes are, I think, unique, at least among all the mobile suits we've seen so far, where it's, it's not the Gundam eyes. It's not the glowing faceplate of a gym. It's not the mono eye. It's this weird black pit that occasionally sparks with light. 
just like Quattro with his blunted affect behind his sunglasses. It's probably a direct nod to the sunglasses. I suspect it is. So Sean, I don't know if the Hyakushiki is the best MS ever, but it is certainly the most audacious, gaudy, blinged out, ominous piece of bleep I've ever seen. Listener Robert not only identified an interesting little tidbit that we missed from episode 2.19, he basically did a research piece for us. And so we are very pleased to share what he discovered. Nina briefly mentioned a slightly odd boat on which Namikar Cornell and Ben Wooder traveled and where they kept Mirai and her children captive. When we initially see this craft, it's traveling at high speed, and the hull appears to be clear of the water's surface, but at a relatively flat altitude, not pitched up the way a speedboat would be. Later, after Amaro has escaped with Mirai, the boat seems to rise out of the water as it gathers speed. Robert thought that this indicated that the boat was a hydrofoil, a boat that lifts out of the water on foils, also called vanes, when at speed, in order to reduce drag from the water. It's not entirely clear in the episode because the foils themselves are never visible. They're always hidden by splashing water. But given the way the boat performs, it does look like a hydrofoil. I think Robert is right about this one. Robert goes on to mention that even now, hydrofoils are pretty high tech uh, and unusual and thinks this was likely a reference to the fact that Hong Kong had a hydrofoil passenger service between Hong Kong and Macau that began in 1964 and continues to this day. The current passenger service is called TurboJet. He does, however, make the distinction that the hydrofoil in the episode does not have a front foil, while those using the Hong Kong passenger service do. So it may be designed to look more like a military hydrofoil. He gives the example of the experimental USS Plainview, which had the foils toward the rear of the, the boat, leaving the bow clear. The Plainview, at the time of its creation, was the world's largest hydrofoil and was first launched in 1965. In addition to the sources Robert provided, we will also link to some general information about hydrofoils and a link he included, which has a video of the USS Plainview in action. We could never possibly cover every cool thing that comes up in these episodes, and so we really appreciate any cool research bits that y'all can provide. Yes, thank you very much. I hope you're ready to get into the weeds a bit, because LC, coming in with a hot take, posits that Gundam gets worse the more it strays from harder sci-fi. To expand, LC feels that Zeta is an excellent series that does a lot for the franchise, but also creates a lot of things that they don't like, primarily the deeper, what they describe as woo, of new types. Woo types. They personally prefer the more grounded aspects of the franchise and would much rather have the franchise be a way of serving up deep philosophical and ethical conversations than having it be about new age, post-Jedi space magic. Not to pick on Elsie here. <laughs> I realize uh, you're not here to argue back with me. But I have strong objections to the use of the term hard sci-fi. The line between technology that's not real and can't be explained and magic is entirely subjective to my mind. Like, how is new type powers different from Minovsky particles, except that they use the word particle to make it sound science-y? <laughs> Don't worry, there's an entire lexicon of new type science-y jargon. Psychowaves, psychomus. Right, so if that were employed, would that be sufficiently hard sci-fi? Like, most of the science here 
is only loosely based in reality. <laughs> yeah, we've talked about how some of the physics in the space combat don't make any sense. But that quibble over with, I think we should tackle the main point here, which is, does the new type stuff add to the show in a good way, or does it in fact detract from the show? I'll say this. I think the way new type stuff was handled in First Gundam, the show, was a lot better than the way it was handled in First Gundam, the movies. Yes. And unfortunately, we are still pretty early in Zeta in terms of talking about how new type stuff figures into Zeta as a whole and Gundam as a franchise. I will say, for my part, I'm not sure that I like either extreme. I think that the tension between the, even though Nina hates the term, hard sci-fi and the new type woo is a lot of what gives Gundam its enduring vitality. You go too far in either direction and it starts to lose that tension. And I think probably the best thing about the new type stuff at this stage is that recurring refrain, nobody really knows what they're talking about. Everybody's theories are going in different directions. The very nature of what a new type is, is in flux. Is it actually a space psychic? Is it a person who can control their emotions? Is it somewhere in between? Are the psychics new types or is that like a different thing? I found it very interesting that Elsie brought up philosophy and ethics because so much of the way characters talk about being a new type or, or what new types can do or what being a new type means is based, as we've talked about before, in certain ideas of like expansion of the self and the mind, of oneness with the universe, of ideas that come from like particular spiritual and uh, like self-improvement traditions. Now, hypothetically, Nina, mm -hmm. if someone were to use their new type powers to create like a glowing energy shield. Okay, that would be dumb. <laughs> okay, but we're not there yet. <laughs> I'm not saying we'll ever get there, but, you know, if we're talking about space magic, I'm talking about the extremes of where it might end up. Sure. And and it's possible that LC, with, I assume, a lot more experience with Gundam than I have, is also thinking of some of the more egregious moments of this. And it's definitely a bit much sometimes, right? Like, there are moments when new types are affected by each other's presence in a way that reminds me of old stories of martial arts masters who could like explode light bulbs <laughs> with their mind, with their key or, you know, mm -hmm. um, and that can be a bit much. Yeah. And we have seen, I think only once, but we have seen someone use their new type powers to control a mobile suit at a distance. But that has a basis in science. Using our brains to control pieces of machinery at distance is a thing we can do. <laughs> I think we did research on it. That's the hardest of science. So, yeah, I guess I would say I think new types fulfill a function in the show of talking about certain ideas about interconnectedness of humanity. You know, Amaro always comes back to talking about it as purely being exceptionally receptive, right? Exceptionally open to the inputs around you, including those from other people. Whereas, say, Shar seems to have a more nebulous idea of new typism, but that it makes you inherently superior in some way. And I think those differences, the different manifestations that we see, who exhibits that and who doesn't, all adds some interesting layers to the show and some good grounds for us to speculate about what's really going on. Um, I do think it can go too far. I don't think that uh, I don't think that that should be sort of unbridled. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think it should be the purpose of the show. I don't think it should be the entire focus. 
because it's not the most interesting thing. So we're kind of agreeing with you. <laughs> but I also think that a Gundam show without any new type stuff in it at all would start to feel deeply nihilistic. Very bleak, very... Well, and you also you also lose a bit of nuance when you get into some of the different philosophies the characters espouse. Like, then it just becomes Earthnoids and Spacenoids rather than Earthnoids and Spacenoids. And maybe humans become like a superior version of themselves in space. We're not really sure. And not for nothing, especially from the vantage of 2019, I find it really interesting to dig into some of that New Age philosophy that was uh, perhaps in its heyday in the 70s, but that was still very much alive in the 80s, which is certainly still alive now, but in a different flavor, <laughs> in a different form. Uh, I think it tells us a lot about the show, the world of the show, the people who made the show. It's also very interesting for us to look at a science fiction series, a speculative fiction series about the future where all of the characters are just like the audience looking forward to some imagined future. I just had a light bulb moment. In First Gundam, new types are, in fact, an incredible source of hope in a bleak and sad world because... The fact that Amro and Lala are new types and are able to completely understand each other feels like the one hope humanity has to maybe never go to war again. Like, oh, if everyone could just have perfect understanding between each other, if everyone could have this connection, then we would never need to go to war again. It's sort of a beautiful idea, but then of course gets torn apart in Zeta because we see plenty of new types who aren't interested in that kind of connection. You know, we get every indication that Sirocco is an incredibly powerful new type, and yet there's no sense that what he's doing is going to lead to an end to war. Mere understanding is not enough. And even the ability to have perfect understanding is not enough. That we are still, in fact, dependent on the vagaries of individual people with all their flaws and weaknesses. Needs More Sharma contacted us to share a theory about that scene towards the end of First Gundam where Giren declares himself to be a follower of Hitler without actually knowing who Hitler is. Toward the end of First Gundam, Giren and Dagwin Zabi share an infamous scene in which Dagwin asks if Giren, Zeon's supreme leader, has ever heard of Adolf Hitler. This is when Giren describes himself as a follower of Hitler. And the conventional reading of this scene, the one that Nina and I discussed on the podcast, is that Dagwin is accusing Giren of being like Hitler, and that Giren eagerly accepts that accusation. As I put it, this is when the show turns to the audience and just states outright that the whole thing has been a metaphor for World War II. However, Needs More Sharma thought that this scene actually showed Giren not as an analog for Hitler, but for his follower, Mussolini. Both relied on external forces more powerful than themselves. Mussolini relied on Hitler. Giren relies on new types. Giren, like Mussolini, is incoherent as a commander, and he's killed by Caecilia, similar to the way that Mussolini was executed by Italian partisans. Going further in this theory, the true stand-in for Hitler in First Gundam would actually be Shar. There are two reasons for this. First, the relationship between Giren as Mussolini and Shar. Giren is weaker in every way and relies on Shar's strength for the sake of achieving his own ambitions, just as Mussolini's fascist Italy relied on Hitler's Nazi Germany. Second, Shar is depicted as having taken up but also warped his father's philosophical beliefs, creating a violent perversion of Zeon Dekun's philosophy. 
This reflects Hitler's own self-aggrandizing interpretation of the philosophy espoused by his mentor, Dietrich Eckhart. Nietzsche-Morsharma also thinks that the Schar-Lala relationship is an allegory for the relationship between Hitler and the party and the German public, given that both Lala and Germany rely exclusively on Schar-Hitler for survival. And it also shows how the manipulation of those said devotees can lead seeming innocent people to commit barbaric acts in the name of a moral crusade, often against their own self-interest. I think this is a really interesting theory, and I think it shows how much latitude there is in these kinds of allegories for different interpretations, especially around the nuances and the details. Ultimately, though, I don't buy it. Um, I think the Giren-Hitler parallels are too strong for him to be anybody else, and I don't think the story contains two Hitlers. Yeah, I don't really buy the Shar as Hitler. Needs more Sharma mentioned a possible parallel between Zion Dekun and Dietrich Eckhart, but Eckhart was explicitly anti-Semitic long before Hitler ever got a hold of his works. And we don't have any indication that Zion Dekun uh, hated regular humans or anything like that. Right. There's no sense of him being anti-old type. I suppose I would read Zion Dekun as more of a like pro-independence, pro-liberation type leader. Hmm. There's definitely some of that. I mean, I think he he was a political leader in the independence movement for mm -hmm. side three. But I see him and I guess really he's probably a combination of different figures. <laughs> I see him corresponding very strongly to Friedrich Nietzsche. Mm. I'm sure someone's going to tell me I'm pronouncing that wrong. Yeah. <laughs> but the whole idea of new types mm. is real similar to the overman Ubermensch idea. And it's then Giren as Hitler who takes that idea and perverts it and creates this idea that the people of Zion, the Zabi clan, are the superior people mm -hmm. and that they alone will inherit the earth when the war is over. I also thought it was a striking characterization, and I'd be interested to hear more of Needsmore Sharma's thoughts about this, but when he characterizes Giren as weak and dependent on Shar for power, because that wasn't a sense that I got from the show at all. I got a very strong sense of the Zabis as powerful, as in control, <laughs> and Shar as dependent on them in a lot of ways for access, for doing any of the things that he did, right? Like they gave him jobs, they gave him position, they gave him access to equipment. He was able to do a, some scheming on his own, <laughs> obviously, and undermine them in some ways, but he didn't have independent power. He couldn't have gone off by himself. And the Zabis could totally do without him if they wanted to. Now, I, I do agree that Giren is deranged and incompetent, especially as a military commander, mm -hmm. which is absolutely true of Mussolini, but it's also true of Hitler. I will say, I do actually really like the Lala as allegory for the people. Mm -hmm. As a person whose life has been sort of destroyed by the war, Lala becomes a kind of not exactly a blank slate, but she becomes a very mutable personality, and a lot of different things can be projected onto her. But in her devotion to and reliance on the charismatic authority that is Shar, you can see in her a kind of allegory for the people generally or for hurt, traumatized, deprived children who are looking for something to believe in, and they find that in Shar's almost messianic persona and his dream of a new type dominated future. Well, and think about the messaging to some degree. Only I can save you. You are destined for greatness. It's very appealing. Yeah. It's also the same message that Giren gives the people of Zeon. 
you have been oppressed by the shadowy elites on Earth, which just to point out, that's that's an anti-Semitic dog whistle oh. like going back for oh, shadowy elites. centuries. Yeah. I didn't mention this before. Uh, I would just like to say, even when we disagree with people's takes, we love hearing them and we love discussing them. And we hope you're not too bothered by <laughs> us disagreeing with you because we think this stuff is great to talk about. So, yeah, this is really, really interesting. And I very much appreciate Needs More Sharma sharing it with us. And same for Elsie earlier with the discussion of how new typeism fits into the show. Steve B. writes, The topic I'm most interested in is theorizing what Gundam manga and light novels could be adapted into anime. He goes on to talk about being particularly interested in these sort of, he describes them as liminal properties at the edge. Uh, And since we mostly just talk about the anime, it's an area that we really haven't addressed. Uh, He goes on to say, unless I'm mistaken, such adaptations were non-existent in the Gundam franchise up until the past decade, which saw four that he knows of. That Tomino himself wrote a novelized version of Char's counterattack before the film was made, but that it was more of a soft pitch for the film rather than a, a novel meant to stand on its own right. And that Hathaway's Flash coming this winter is also based on a a side property. It's another Tomino novel. And then he proposes his top five non-anime Gundam entries that could become anime sometime in the future. Uh, He mentions Crossbone Gundam, which I've seen some of the Gumpla, but that's all I know about it. Char's Deleted Affair, which doesn't sound real. Like, based on the title, (laughs) I would think it was uh, a fan creation of some kind. Anyway, The Plot to Assassinate Giren Zabi. Ecole du Ciel, and We Are Fetty Hooligans, which I assume is a comedy. It sounds like a comedy. (laughs) Uh, Because I'm not familiar with most of these stories, I can't really speak to how likely I think any of them are to be adapted. I will say, you know, based on other conversations we've had about directions Gundam could go or might go, I can say which things I think ought to get made into Gundam shows uh, and which are likely to. I mean, likelihood, frankly, comes down to what's popular. I feel like if somebody makes a Gundam game or novel or manga and it does really well, then the studio is going to be like, oh, okay, we have a market for this. Perfect. Let's get animation started. It's an easy pitch to them. I don't know if any of the recent Gundam side works uh, address things that we talked about recently, uh, issues of gender, sexuality, identity, the current sense of like fracture of the old political order, environmental issues. Uh, those are things that I would like to see more of, but I don't know if any of that exists. <laughs> All right, I'm going to rain on some parades here. <laughs> Crossbone Gundam is never going to get adapted. Now that I've said that they're going to do it just to prove me wrong, but like it's been around since the 90s. Somebody asks them to adapt it every year. They never do. They never will. If it's been around since the 90s and they haven't yet, it does not look promising. Well, Stephen B. is correct in saying that up until about a decade ago, Gundam was not in the habit of adapting non-anime works into anime. They just made new anime. But that being said, they have started to do this. And so now there's a possibility. But it seems unlikely most of the stuff that's being adapted is pretty new. Ecole du Ciel, I'd love to get an anime adaptation of Ecole du Ciel, but there is no marketing push behind it. They've never made a gunpla of any of the suits from it. Mm. Like, it's not popular enough. I don't see it happening. 
As for the remaining two, We Are Fetty Hooligans is just so different in tone from most of the stuff that you see in Gundam, so I don't see it happening. The plot to assassinate Giren Zabi has maybe the best shot, since it is a one-year war side story and they love to make one-year war side stories. But on balance, I don't think we're going to see any of those five adapted, unfortunately. Especially since most of the new UC animated projects are going to be in the post-unicorn UC Next timeline. Thinking about this question a little bit more, I want to add that since around 2005, 2007 or so, Sunrise and Bandai have been pursuing a strategy with the Gundam releases where they're working on two parallel tracks. At roughly the same time, they'll release a fairly accessible, usually more cheaply made, longer show for kids and new fans. And then at the same time, they'll make higher quality but shorter and more intermittently released projects for adult, long-time established Gundam fans, stuff that's more engaged with the legacy of the series. So at the same time that they were making Unicorn, they were making SD Gundam Sangokuden Brave Battle Warriors. At the same time that they made Awakening of a Trailblazer, they made Gunpla Builders Beginning G, which was the seed for the build series, and Age. Build Fighters came out right before Reconquista in G. The Origin came out at the same time as Iron-Blooded Orphans. And in the last few years, you have the Build series, Fighters, Try, Divers, etc. Paralleled against Thunderbolt, Twilight Axis, Narrative, and Hathaway's Flash. I don't know what the accessible side of that track is going to look like in the next five years or so, but I think we can be pretty certain that the established fan side of that track is going to continue with Thunderbolt, and it's going to be focused on the UC Next Unicorn 2 Hathaway's Flash continuity that they've been building towards for the last few years and that they have laid out as the roadmap for the future. If we were going to get any manga adaptations, they would have to be in that latter track, the one for dedicated, lifelong Gundam fans. So that means we're not going to get any of those adaptations until they run out of Thunderbolt, plausible unicorn sequels, and finish filling in the timeline between the end of narrative and the beginning of F91. Austin wrote in to ask, why doesn't Amuro know how to shake hands? What happened on that dock with Camille? That was the most confused congratulations ever. He's referring here to the episode where Camille has just rescued Amuro and Mirai from Titan's captivity. And Amuro uh, congratulates Camille with a handshake, but he uses his left hand and then Camille sort of grabs the outside of it with his right hand. Yeah, well, and he starts, initially goes for the handshake with the right hand and then readjusts. Uh, what's especially funny about this scene to us is that it's one that gets made fun of a lot and that people have a lot of questions about. But when we first watched it, we thought it was totally understandable. It was so natural. We didn't even comment on it in the episode. We didn't feel like it was necessary. Uh, the thing is, Amuro has Beltorchka clinging to his right side, mostly over his arm. Well, and she's got her like head buried in his shoulder and she's weeping. Right. So he starts to move his arm. But if he were to go and fully reach for the handshake and do the handshake, it would be like he's shrugging her off. It would be like he's shaking her off of him, which he clearly doesn't want to do. Not least of which because 
Throughout this episode, Beltorchka has in fact been very keenly aware of Amaro spending time with Camille and very jealous of Amaro ditching her for Camille. And very worried over his physical safety and he was just in a combat after trying to exchange himself for some hostages. Like, it's been an emotional couple of episodes for her. She does care about him a lot, even if her way of showing that is problematic at times. Uh, and so rather than make her feel shrugged off or or risk sort of shrugging her off, he changes his mind about the handshake and offers the left hand instead. And they animate this whole process. They even animate Camille sort of hesitating a second and then taking the proffered left hand in, you know, kind of an awkward way, but like the appropriate way to do it under the circumstances. They wouldn't have animated this if it weren't important. And this is a classic Tomino thing, like camera at eye level as they animate very mundane movements. It's got a point. And it shows us that Amuro is not the Amuro of First Gundam. He is not insensate to Beltorchka's feelings. He's not going to just shrug her off the way he would once have shrugged off Frabo. Amuro is caught between these two interactions that he's having. On the one hand, he has Beltorchka weeping into his shoulder. On the other hand, Camille just fought very successfully and he wants to congratulate him. And so there is a definite sense of awkwardness. I'm not going to argue that there's that it's not awkward. But I think that's natural to the scene rather than something inherent about how Amaro interacts with other people. <laughs> Kyle F. wrote in with a uh, correction slash clarification for our piece about the Buran. Says, while the Soviet Buran was superficially similar enough to the U.S. shuttle to be called a copy, it differed in one very important way. The shuttle itself was the launch vehicle aided by an external fuel tank and two boosters, while the Buran was merely the payload delivered to orbit by a separate rocket system that used two boosters. And this is absolutely true. Sorry if I misled you by my use of the term shuttle, which I suppose I was using in a less technical sense. This aspect of the Buran is actually pretty cool because it makes it a lot more flexible. If you picture the U.S. shuttle design, you can sort of imagine it in your head. There's the shuttle sitting on the side of a big orange cylinder. And then on either side of that are two long white rocket boosters. When the U.S. shuttle takes off, those long white rocket boosters on the side do their boosting thing. They send the shuttle up. And then the engines that are in the shuttle itself on the back of the shuttle start firing. But those engines on the shuttle are drawing fuel from that big orange tank. The engines on the shuttle are reusable. The tank is not. On the Buran, it's superficially similar, as Kyle said, Extra rocket boosters on the side, big tank thing, shuttle sitting on the side of it. Except that in this scenario, that big tank thing is actually a rocket itself. So the thrust comes out of it and not out of the orbiter. This means that fewer parts of the Buran Energia system are reusable, but it means that they're more flexible. They can send up the orbiter, but they could also send up some other payload. Whereas for the U.S. shuttle, the payload they could send up was limited by what they could fit in the shuttle. So thanks very much for that, Kyle. Thank you all for your research, your opinions, your disagreements. We loved talking about them. I imagine this will become a seasonal episode. Uh, and we return to our regularly scheduled episodes next week. Next time, we are back to regular Mobile Suit Breakdown episodes with episode 2.25 
win every battle and lose the war. We will cover Mobile Suit Zeta Gundam episode 24 and Straight Vibe and on Earth. Shri Climb, age 18. It, it's clear whose side Haro is on. Shar's leadership potential. Camille says the quiet part loud. The most dangerous job in Gundam. Only the children can be brave. And Fa becomes the only person in this whole show to blame herself for the consequences of her actions. You will see the tears of time. Remember to do all of the podcast things. Subscribe and review Mobile Suit Breakdown wherever you get your podcasts. Then pledge your undying devotion to Mobile Suit Breakdown on Patreon, where you can find great bonus content, get access to the MSB Discord, get exclusive MSB merchandise, and, you know, support the podcast. You can also follow at Gundam Podcast on Twitter and Instagram, and like us at facebook.com slash Gundam Podcast for all kinds of extra content. And you should always check out our website, GundamPodcast.com, for all of our episodes, show notes, watch list, wish list, some other lists, and more. Plus, you can always email your questions, comments, and complaints to GundamPodcast at gmail.com. Or shout your wrong Gundam opinion at us in person by coming to scenic New York City and yelling, There's nothing silly about the name Shree Climb. Shree Climb was the most popular name for boys and girls in UC72. The intro song is Wasp by Misha Dioxin, and the closing music is Long Way Home by Spinning Ratio. You can find links and more in the show notes. And thank you for listening. Next question? Yeah, hang on a second. I just lost hearing in my left ear. Oh. It happens from time to time. Looked up? Mm, no, it just starts ringing tinnitus or something or potentially one of many symptoms of <laughs> certain underlying conditions <clears throat> I'm gonna bleep myself on that one <laughs> three quarters of Moore's lines are just cherido cherido <laughs> All right, I'm about to put every ounce of energy I have into my voice. I will be incapable of doing anything else all day.